This morning, I want to begin just by talking about an extremely important aspect of the of the Christian life, and really, really all of life. And the thing that I have in mind is we kind of are going to make our way to our text kind of in a roundabout way today. The thing, the thing that I have in mind is the way that we listen to the word, or maybe I should say it this way, the, the way that we listen to those who teach us the word. We're in Matthew chapter 11, and last week we ended at 11 and verse 15, where Jesus says, he who has ears to hear let him hear. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And that was a call by Jesus the Christ to hear what he was saying. And he was telling the people that, that he was the Christ and he was offering them the kingdom and they needed to repent. Both John and Jesus had preached that same message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Both of them also pointed to Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the promised son of David, the promised king of Israel, the one who would undo the curse on creation and destroy the serpent and in whom all of God's purposes would be fulfilled. And so when Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, he must hear, he means that this message needs to be heeded, that it needs to be responded to, that the word of God must be obeyed. And so Jesus is saying, it's time to repent. It's time to follow Christ. It's time to be a disciple of his. It's time to enter the kingdom by receiving the king. But so many in Jesus' day didn't have ears to hear. They had ears, but not ears to respond to the message. They didn't heed the word of God. They didn't obey. And this response to Jesus and to John shows us what theologians call Total inability. Total inability is a subcategory of total depravity, and total depravity is a subcategory of the doctrine of man. So the doctrine of man, and then total depravity, and then a little subset of that is called total inability. So what does the Bible teach about man? Well, the scripture teaches that man is a wretched creature marred by sin. That we were made in the image of God, but we fell from our blessed state through the sin of our father, Adam. And we are still in the image of God, but we've been corrupted by sin. Sin has passed down to each and every one of us through our first parents. And so we could say that sin is in our genes, or maybe we could even say, I don't know if this is right, uh, scientifically or whatever, but sin is in our DNA. And that sin has killed us spiritually and separated us from God. We are born in sin. We are born guilty simply from our association with Adam. We are sinners, and in Adam we have sinned. Adam was our representative, and in him we have sinned. And that sin that we are born with affects every part of us. Sin affects the totality of our being, hence total depravity. Sin affects our minds, our hearts, our emotions. It affects our thinking. It affects our perception of things in the world. Sin affects what we love, our affections, our values, 
all of us, our entire being has been corrupted by sin. And so the total in total depravity means that every part of us has been affected by sin. And it also means the totality of the human race has been thus affected. Nobody escapes this birth into the world in sin. Everyone has been born spiritually dead and marred by sin. And death is the penalty for sin. Everyone dies, even those who didn't commit the same level of sin, of transgression that Adam did. Every single person who comes into this world is doomed to die. And that shows us that God considers our marred state as worthy of death. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 3 says that we were by nature, or we are by nature, children of wrath. We come into the world as sinners and therefore as worthy of death and as objects of God's wrath. Now in that state, our whole self is so affected by sin that we are unable to deliver ourselves from it. We are so affected by sin that we're unable to rescue ourselves. And so Jesus says in John 8.34, everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. We are slaves and the, the Son must set us free. Titus chapter 3 and verse 3 says this, We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But what I really want to bring our focus to there is slaves to various passions and pleasures. We were slaves to the passions and desires of our sinful natures. We were kind of a a willing slave, if you would kind of take it that way. We were willing slaves. We were bound by our desires. We wanted to sin. We freely chose to sin. It was what we wanted to do. It was what we loved and valued. And there was no desire in us before our salvation to depart from sin. And because there was no desire, there was no ability to choose something other than sin. We were bound by our sinful natures. That's what it means to be a slave of sin. Now, another way that scripture describes us in our unregenerate state is not only are we slaves, but we're also blind. And so turn, as we kind of just take a long introduction here this morning, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Second Corinthians chapter four, verse three, Paul says that the gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. It's, it's veiled like a, a bride is veiled. You can't quite see it. The gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. And then verse four says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And Satan here is called the God, small g, the God of this world. And he has blinded the unbelieving to keep them from seeing the glory of Christ. You see, unbelievers can't see the greatness of our Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, they won't follow him. They won't come to him. They they prefer to remain in the sin that they love. 
And so what's required to deliver them from that state? And it's really nothing short of a miracle. On par with the miracle of creation, God must open the blind eyes. God must give new eyes so that somebody can see the glory of Christ. And we see that in verse 6 of the passage. So look at that, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. It says, for God, and Paul's really describing himself as one who is not one of the perishing, but one of those who is being saved. He says, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness. Remember, that was in creation has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And so God has turned on the light for Paul and his companions so that they could see what the unbeliever who was blind could not see. And so Paul says God turned on the light in a powerful new creation of our hearts. And that powerful new creation mirrors his work in the creation of light at the beginning of the world. Now, before God turns on the light, the gospel is foolishness to us. And we don't want that gospel. And so 1 Corinthians, and actually, why don't we just go ahead and turn with me there if you want. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18 says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. That's that same group there. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, But to us who are being saved, that is the power of God. Then if you jump down to verse 22, it says, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. And then in chapter 2 and verse 14, Paul says that the natural person, that is the unsaved person, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And so notice that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. And we might ask, well, what are the things of the Spirit of God? And in the context there, it's the message of the gospel. It's the good news of the cross of Christ. And so the natural person thinks that it's folly or the natural person takes it as a stumbling block and they don't accept the things of the Spirit of God. He or she does not accept the gospel. And then Paul says, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And so he or she is not able to accept the gospel because they're not spiritual persons. They are dead. They are Blind, they are slaves of sin, they are hardened in their hearts. Romans chapter 3, and, and why not just turn there as well? Romans 3, 9 to 18 really summarizes the spiritual or the scriptural teaching on men. Paul says in verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. And so there is nobody who understands, there is no one who is righteous, there is no one who is seeking after God, they have all turned aside to their sin because they were born as sinners. And just these verses, these few verses that we've looked at, it's just really scratching the surface of what the Bible teaches on man and the doctrine of total depravity. 
Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1 and Colossians 2.13 both say that we were dead in trespasses and sins. We were dead and God had to make us alive with Christ before we would trust Christ and turn from our sins, before our eyes would open, before our hearts were softened. And our natural response in that dead, blind, hardened state is to resist the truth in unrighteousness. And that's from Romans chapter 1 and verse 18. And I I want you to see that verse as well. This is an important verse. Paul says there, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. See, unrighteous suppression of the truth is what sinful men and women do. It's just what's natural to us. We know that there's a God and we know that he is worthy of honor, but we reject him in our natural state. And I say all of that kind of as a foundation for what we see happening in Jesus's day. See, in Jesus's day, and we're, we're going kind of back to Matthew 11 here, so you could you could kind of turn there, or maybe you've got your, your finger there already. But in Jesus's day, what's happening is the Messiah is walking on the earth. And he's doing undeniable, undeniable miracles that prove that he is the Christ. Remember, John the Baptist was doubting. And in, in Matthew 11 and verse 5, Jesus told John's disciples to go and tell John that the blind receive their sight. The lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And these miracles, and uh, as well as the amazing teaching of our Lord, should have been enough to convince everyone to turn to Jesus. It should have been enough proof that was needed so that they would repent and believe that he was the Christ. But all of these amazing miracles that were happening weren't enough. And they weren't enough and the people didn't believe, the people didn't turn from their sin because they didn't want to believe and they didn't want to uh, repent of their sin. They wanted to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And I think in a way we could think of really the whole Bible from Genesis chapter 4 all the way to Revelation chapter 20 As example after example, one example after another example of the depravity of man and of our tendency to suppress the truth and unrighteousness and to resist God and his word. And so Genesis chapter six, right after the the sin of man, we see, you know, everyone dies. And then chapter six is the beginning of the flood narrative. And Genesis six, five says the Lord saw the wickedness of man or sorry, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And in Revelation chapter 20, on the other end of the spectrum, at the very end of time, Revelation chapter 20, even after witnessing the reign of Christ on earth for a thousand years, thousand years of peace and prosperity and Christ ruling on the earth, Satan is going to be allowed to be to to be released and he's going to be allowed to deceive the nations and the unregenerate in that time and he's going to lead them in a rebellion against Jesus Christ. And so Revelation 20 and verse 7 to 10 reads this and when the thousand years are ended 
Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. See all these people that, that Satan is able to deceive even after this thousand years of Christ. Their number is like the sand of the sea and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And what we see then in Jesus' day, what we're looking at in Matthew chapter 11 is we see this rejection and denial of the Israelites of that day. They refused to repent. They refused to believe. They made excuses for their unbelief. And Jesus describes this rejection in Matthew 11 verses 16 to 19. And that's going to be our text for this morning. Matthew 11 16 to 19. He describes the generation of Israel that was alive at the time and he compares them to children who complain that their playmates aren't playing right. And so if you're there, look at our text, Matthew chapter 11, starting at verse 16. Jesus says, but to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Now, as we look at this text, one of the applications for us is that we need to be careful how we listen to the word. You see, Israel rejected both John and Jesus. Remember, John was the greatest one who was born of a woman, and they rejected his message. They rejected the Son of Man. They rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. And they found whatever excuse they could so that they could justify their refusal to repent and believe and follow Christ. John didn't eat and drink. Well, he's got a demon. Jesus does eat and drink. He's a glutton. And they looked for any reason to reject the messenger so that they could reject the message. Now, for us as believers, we no longer suppress the truth and unrighteousness, but we still have the flesh in us. And we continue to battle against the remnants of sin in our lives. And we still have somewhat of a tendency then to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And one of the ways that we will justify disobedience in our lives is by trying to discredit our teachers. You see, I'm not John the Baptist and I am not Jesus Christ. I'll have sins and shortcomings and, and, and I may have things in my life that you don't like or you don't prefer. But beware of rejecting God and his word on account of me or on account of any other messenger or preacher of the gospel. You see, we must obey God even if he chooses to speak through a donkey. And God sometimes chooses the weakest so that people will recognize that he is working through his word. 
Second Corinthians 4, 7 is just such a great verse, just after the one that I read in verse 6. Paul says there, but we have this treasure. And again, the treasure that he's talking about is the gospel. He says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. And Paul himself then in that illustration is the jar of clay. And he says then that it's to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And so God has entrusted the gospel to sinful and weak human beings to show that the saving powers has nothing to do with the vessel through whom the word goes, but it has everything to do with the surpassing power of God that is able to save sinners who are blind and dead and slaves of sin. And God delights to work through weakness so that people recognize his power and his glory. And so beware then of how you listen. We need to be careful to see that if if what we are hearing is God's word, we need to make sure that we're not listening to a man or following a man or following the opinions of men, but we need to be careful to heed the word of God for what it says. And in our text, we're going to see Jesus's view of his generation. They were like discontented children complaining about their playmates. Whatever Jesus or John did wasn't good enough for them, and so they weren't going to follow them. And the idea then is that no matter who God sent, it was never enough. The nation didn't want to listen to God, and so they found reasons to reject the messengers that he sent. And again, in the words of Romans 1.18, they were suppressing the truth. And that suppression, though it's natural to fallen man who is dead and blind in his sins, it is still unrighteousness. That suppression of the truth is an unrighteous suppression. It's a sinful repression of, or suppression of the truth. And God will hold these people, this nation, as guilty for their sin of rejecting him. And he'll do the same for us if we reject his word. So let's look at our text then this morning in a little more detail. And we're going to do so under three headings. And the first one is we're going to see, number one, the discontented children in verses 16 and 17. So the discontented children. Look at verse 16 again. It says, but to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates, We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. Jesus draws a comparison. What is this generation like? Well, they're like children playing a game and they're in the marketplaces playing this game. And their parents are either shopping or perhaps their parents are um, the, the sellers in the market selling their wares. The marketplaces in Israel were busy places full of activity and and the whole family would be there often because that's where they cared for the family. Their parents are again selling their wares and the children would play in the marketplaces. And these children that we picture here, they're not happy children. They're not having a a good play time today. It's not a, a good day of play. Their playmates, they're not playing the way that they should play. They're not playing the game Right. They're not playing nice. These children then that are calling out their criticism to the other children and they're telling them that they're not, they're, they're playing the game wrong. 
And the game that they're playing, or maybe the games, plural, that they're playing, maybe there's two games here or one game, I'm not sure, but there's a wedding and a funeral component to, to this game. And at the wedding, if you were at a wedding, there would be a happy flute music, and the men would dance while the flute music played. And at a funeral, someone would often sing a sad song. That word translated there, we sang a dirge, means to express oneself in sorrowful tones or to mourn for someone in a ritual fashion. But that word was also used for singing songs or hymns of grief. And that's likely what is happening here. And, 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 and it corresponds here to playing the flute. And so it's likely that this was a song, uh, a, a mournful song, a song of grief. And remember at the funerals in Israel, there were, there would be women who were hi- hired to grieve. They, they, they called them the wailing women. And, and these women would wail. And I've been debating if I should try to, you know, give an illustration of the, de- uh, of the debate. And I just saw somebody shake their head no at me. And so I'm going to restrain. But you could imagine in your own mind the, the wailing women of, as they would, oh, but that was, you know, but he was so young and no. Oh. So I did it anyways. Um, so that's, that was kind of the, the, the situation. It's so weird to us. It's so weird to me, but I, I, I could imagine that it would help the rest of the family just express their grief as everyone around them is crying and weeping. And maybe it made it easier for the rest of the family when these professionals were around. But the children in this game, they, they sang their mournful song. But the other kids didn't mourn. They didn't, they didn't wail. And they played their happy flute. Okay, let's try a different game. I'll play my happy flute. But they didn't dance. And so they called out to their playmates saying, in effect, you're not playing right. You're not doing it right. Now today, as far as I know, the kids don't play a wedding and a funeral game. They play Foursquare and other kinds of games. But the nature of children hasn't changed in 2,000 years. And so we know exactly what's happening here. And I think we can picture exactly what's happening here. Maybe some of the children you know, in in effect, say something like this. I was doing everything right, right? Have you ever had a conversation like this with your kids? I was doing everything right, but so-and-so cheated. Or so-and-so wouldn't play. I was was playing it really nice, and -and so-and-so wouldn't play with me at all. Or we can picture it from the other side. Yeah, so-and-so played the flute, but he doesn't play it right. You know, or he doesn't, it was my turn to play the flute, but he wouldn't let me play, so I'm not going to give a dance when he does that, right? You can kind of get the picture of that kind of situation. <laughs> anyway, you can picture, I, I know, maybe I'm getting a little bit too worked up about this here. I'm just kind of, I've had conversations like this sometimes multiple times in a day. Some of us can, and that's what is in my notes next, some of us can think of multiple conversations with our children like that. But in Jesus' illustration, both sets of children are unhappy. Those who play the flute or sing are upset that the others aren't dancing or mourning, and those who aren't dancing or mourning are refusing to play with the flute players and the singers. And so we have a bunch of discontented children. And Jesus amazingly, compares his generation, those who were alive when he walked the earth, with discontented, unhappy children. 
who are unhappy with how their playmates are playing and what they're doing. And so now in verses 18 and 19, he's going to apply this to what's happening with Israel's response to his ministry and to the ministry of John the Baptist. And so we saw the discontented children. Um, now let's see number two, the disobedient nation in verses 18 and 19. So John came, so it's for John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, and we're going to stop right there. So first Jesus talks about how John came. He came neither eating nor drinking. Now John did eat, but he didn't eat normally. He was an ascetic. He lived in the wilderness. Matthew 3 verse 4 says, Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. And so if John ate locusts and wild honey, that's like honey right from the beehive that he's finding out in the wilderness, it's likely that most people would have never seen him eat. And so what did the people think of John's ministry? What did they think of his ascetic lifestyle in the wilderness, his calling people to repent? Well, they said he has a demon. Matthew 9.34 tells us that the Pharisees said the same thing about Jesus. Matthew 9.34, but the Pharisees said he casts out demons by the prince of demons. And so the nation or that generation rejected John. We had seen that many had come to hear him preach and many even had been baptized in his baptism of repentance. But the generation that was alive then complained about John like children in the marketplace. He doesn't eat. He doesn't drink. He has a demon. And then in verse 19, we see the ministry of Jesus. He's in some ways the very opposite of John. He's come in the exact opposite manner. He's come eating and drinking, verse 19. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. See, John took a Nazarite vow so that he wouldn't have drunk alcohol either. Luke 13, uh, Luke 1.13, the angel said to Zacharias' father, John the Baptist's father, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayers have been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And so John didn't drink wine or strong drink. Now Jesus would have likely drank the wine of his day which was like a a low alcohol wine cut very heavily with water it was enough to kill the germs in the in the water that the people were drinking enough to make the water safe that's the same wine that Paul told Timothy to drink in 1 Timothy 5:23 he says drink no longer uh, or no longer drink only water but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments And so Jesus came eating and drinking. He ate normally and he drank normally. And so he came eating and drinking. And and he was known from time to time to gather at a feast or at a celebration. He was at weddings. He was at, you know, in Matthew chapter 9 actually, and you could just turn back there. He was questioned by John's disciples about the, the seeming lack of fasting that was going on. So look at Matthew 9. We'll start reading in verse 9. 
As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, follow me. And he followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, and that's a a way to say that he was at the table eating, he was having a feast at the house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And then verse 14, but the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. And so Jesus called Matthew as a disciple and afterward there was a massive feast at Matthew's house and some of the other gospels go into more detail about the feast. But many sinners and tax collectors came to that feast. And the Pharisees questioned Jesus' disciples about it. They would, they would never associate with sinners that way. Jesus told them that he came to call sinners and that sinners are the ones who need a physician. And then John's disciples come and they ask about fasting. And Jesus told them that fasting doesn't fit the situation while he's alive. While he is with them, um, It's not appropriate to fast, but there's going to be a day when he, when Jesus is taken away and then the disciples would fast. And so Jesus is the king. He is the the bridegroom. We, We call him just the groom. And while he was on earth offering Israel the kingdom, it was time to celebrate. It wasn't time to fast. And so Jesus came eating and drinking. He came with a a celebration. His ministry was like a celebration of a wedding. And if we tie it back to the children's game, Jesus was the, the wedding with the flutes and the dancing, whereas John was the funeral with mourning and fasting. And so again in our text, verse 19, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And so how did that generation of discontent children respond to the opposite ministry of Jesus? They responded the same way as they did to John. They found a reason to reject his ministry. John eats too little. Jesus eats too much. John's by himself in the wilderness. Jesus is with too many sinners and tax collectors. And even if someone came with the perfect middle balance, this generation would have found an excuse not to heed the word of God. You see, Paul spoke also about this phenomenon in 2 Timothy chapter 4, and I want you to turn with me there. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 4, starting at verse 2. Paul says to Timothy in verse 2, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, 
But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And so Israel had turned away from the truth that John and Jesus proclaimed. And they would not endure the rebuke or the exhortation. They didn't want the teaching. They wanted to follow their own passions and the desires of their sinful hearts. And that's a very dangerous position to be in. Now, I need to say here that Jesus was called a glutton and a drunkard, but he associated with sinners and tax collectors, but not because they were influencing him. You see, Jesus was the sinless lamb of God. He was never drunk. He was never, he never overate or committed adult, or he never committed adultery, but he didn't commit gluttony either, which is what I was trying to say. He never allowed sinful men or women to influence him or persuade him to sin. But that's the thing. They, they found a way, they found a reason to reject Jesus. And they found a reason to reject John. John was the greatest of those born of women. And if they rejected the greatest of those born of women, if they rejected the greatest man who ever lived, and if they rejected the sinless one, the Lord Jesus Christ, how much more will they find a reason to reject us and our gospel message? And so let's go back then and tie this to verses 16 and 17. See, the comparison is between this generation and the way they responded to Jesus and to John, and it's compared then to disgruntled children. Now, Jesus isn't necessarily saying that he played the flute or John sang a dirge. He's just saying that like upset brats, the generation of Israel was not happy no matter who God sent them. Nothing or no one was good enough for them. Nobody was going to be good enough for them to receive the word of God. And so to tie that back then to our introduction or to biblical theology, the explanation for this is the depravity of man who suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. You see, the world doesn't want the truth, and so they're going to find ways to deny it. And so that was number two, the disobedient nation. And what we're going to see now as we look at the end of verse 19 is the way that God works to reach these kind of lost people. Despite the resistance of sinners to the truth, God's wisdom is shown by working through those he uses. And this really then should be a great encouragement for us because it shows that God will use us in all our weakness to reach the lost. God's wisdom was on display when he used Jesus Christ or when he used John, and his wisdom is even on display as he uses us to proclaim the gospel through which God saves his elect. And so in verse 19, Jesus says, back to our text here, Jesus says, but yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Wisdom is justified by her deeds. And I called this then number three, the vindicated Lord. The vindicated Lord. Wisdom is justified by her deeds. Now I call this the vindicated Lord because the focus is really more on Jesus here than it is on John. The word there, deeds, is, is probably meant to bring us back to Matthew 11 and verse 2. And just go back and look at that. Matthew 11 verse 2. It says, now when John heard in prison 
about the deeds, that same word there, about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples. And so this whole section has been telling us about the deeds of Jesus, who is the Christ, as well as kind of tied into here the deeds of John, the one who prepared the way of the Christ. And those deeds led us to see that Jesus was or that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. And here in verse 19, Jesus is saying that despite his rejection, both he and John were working according to wisdom in their ministries. They were operating wisely. Now, I want you to turn to the parallel passage for this in the book of Luke, and that's in Luke chapter 7. Starting at verse 31, Luke 7, 31 to 35 is, is almost word for word the same as our passage in Matthew. But at the very end in Luke seven thirty-five, it says this, Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Wisdom is justified by all her children. Instead of wisdom justified by her deeds, Luke has wisdom is justified by all her children. And so in Luke, John and Jesus are the children of wisdom. In Matthew, their deeds come from wisdom. Now, as we've been going through Matthew, I I haven't spent very much time harmonizing the Gospels. Some preachers will, will spend more time doing that, kind of looking at how it compares with Matthew and Luke and Mark. Um, some commentators that I, that I read week to week spend a lot of their time, a lot of their words kind of fitting together Matthew and Luke, and I, I think it's good to a point. The Gospels do fit together without error, all, all, especially the synoptic Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They fit together without error, and they're in perfect harmony with one another, even if at times we might have difficulty figuring out exactly how they fit together. And I think in this case, you know, some of the commentators spend a long time on this, but in this case, Jesus could easily have said both things, right? He could have easily said, yet wisdom is justified by all her children and by her deeds. And that would just kind of summarize it. Luke and Matthew don't say every single thing that Jesus said every time he spoke. So Luke focused on one part and Matthew on another. And our goal just kind of, I thought this would be a good time to kind of pull this aside and explain why I do this. Our goal is really just to focus on what Matthew said in his presentation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the idea here of uh, of this word justified is to be vindicated, to be shown to be right. And so God's wisdom was shown in sending the nation an ascetic like John and somebody who enjoyed good food like our Lord Jesus. God's wisdom is shown also in how he works through us to reach people with his truth. When God accomplishes his work through our weakness, it serves to magnify his power all the more. Again, 2 Corinthians 4, 7, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. God's wisdom is on display when he uses men and women who still have the remnants of their sinful flesh in them to reach other sinful humans and to save them even even though those people would naturally reject him and suppress the truth. You see, God's work is not hindered by our weakness. It's actually magnified to show that the power is from him. 
And now going back to our context in Matthew here, even the rejection of our Lord only serves to magnify the justice of God in condemning unrighteous sinners who resist God. And in the verses that follow immediately after our text, Jesus is going to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works were done because they did not repent. And so they rejected him and they did so in a guilty manner. And now they're going to be worthy of God's judgment because of their rejection. And so look at Matthew 11 and starting in verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. And again, this shows us that men are accountable for their response. We are accountable for how we respond to the world of God. You see, the world is guilty for the rejection of God, even though, in a sense, they can do no other. In fact, in the very next verses, in, in Matthew eleven twenty five to 27, it shows maybe clearer than anywhere else in Scripture that God is sovereign in salvation and that ultimately everything depends on Him. And so look at that, those verses, Matthew eleven twenty five. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Now, we might have trouble harmonizing these things, but Scripture tells us clearly that both is true. Man is responsible. Man is responsible for his choices and for his rejection of God. And at the same time, God is sovereign over salvation and chooses whom He will. Men are accountable for their rejection even though they cannot know the Father apart from the Son's choice of them. Scripture is clear that men are guilty for the rejection of Christ and they are at the same time unable to do otherwise. Now I think the way to put these things together is to see man as being unwilling to come to Christ. I think that's how we put all of these things together. Man is unwilling to come apart from God's grace. And our unwillingness is also a sinful unwillingness. Our unwillingness makes us unable to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we don't want to repent until God's gracious will makes us alive with Christ. But even if we can't understand how it all works, we must believe the clear testimony of Scripture that man is unable to save himself or respond apart from grace and that man is at the same time culpable or, or responsible for his 
response to the word of God. Man is unable and man is culpable. And at the same time, as we look at God, God is able. God is mighty to save. He is able to make us alive. He is able to give us a new heart. He is able to make us born again. And God is also, as we think about that, he is not culpable. He is not the author of sin. He doesn't make anyone sin. And so he is never guilty of evil in the evil that he allows and even plans in this world. Now, there's so much more that I would love to say about all that. And we're going to do that as we look at Matthew 20, or, or sorry, Matthew 11, verses 20, really to the end of Matthew 11, verse 30. But let me just close with this as we kind of bring this thing to a close. No matter who God sent or how they acted, Israel would not listen or obey the Lord. <clears throat> they would not obey the word of God. Even God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, was rejected. And so be very careful, brethren, what you hear and what you receive. We must believe Scripture. And we need to study carefully to see if what we are hearing and understanding, if, if what we are being taught is the Word of God. And we must allow then the Word of God to challenge our beliefs. We must allow the Word of God to challenge our actions and to challenge our emotions. And so don't be like Israel. Don't be a discontented brat that no one can teach, not even the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what this, this word is for us. Don't be a discontented brat that nobody can teach, not even the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And I'm sure that there were many people in Israel who felt perfectly justified in saying that John has a demon and Jesus was a glutton. And so beware of doing that yourself in your own life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for how you work in our lives, how you've worked to overcome our sinful depravity. We thank you for your sovereignty and salvation and for the way that you have in all wisdom worked in this world and designed these things, some things that are even hard for us to understand. Father, we pray that we would be a people that's submissive to your word, that would have soft hearts, and open minds, not to the, the nonsense in the world, not to the, the false religion, but would have open minds to your truth. And that you would help us to form our lives around your word. Because we know that it's as we obey your word and as we become more like Christ through your word, that you will be glorified in our lives for our salvation. The salvation that you have given us through your son, Jesus Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.